I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Fuse listeners. Just in time for tomorrow's New Hampshire primary, I've got a conversation I had back in December with journalist Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family and Sea Street, both books dealing with the subject of Christian nationalism. The Family, you may remember, was adapted into a Netflix documentary miniseries. Jeff's journalism has been a big influence on me. I really, really highly recommend his work. And he has a new book out that we had a chance to speak about in this conversation. It's very timely. And it's entitled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. In it, Jeff explores what he calls the Trumpocene in a series of essays about a number of different topics ranging from the men's rights movement to the January 6th insurrection and the death of Ashley Babbitt. It's a really good book and I highly recommend you give it a read. In the meantime though, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Jeff Charlette. Hey there, Parallax Fuse listeners. Just in time for tomorrow's New Hampshire primary, I've got a conversation I had back in December with journalist Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family and Sea Street, both books dealing with the subject of Christian nationalism. The Family, you may remember, was adapted into a Netflix documentary miniseries. Jeff's journalism has been a big influence on me. I really, really highly recommend his work. And he has a new book out that we had a chance to speak about in this conversation. It's very timely. And it's entitled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. In it, Jeff explores what he calls the Trumpocene in a series of essays about a number of different topics ranging from the men's rights movement to the January 6th insurrection and the death of Ashley Babbitt. It's a really good book and I highly recommend you give it a read. In the meantime though, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Jeff Charlette. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with. That is even an understatement for me because I've been reading his work uh, for a number of years now. Jeff Charlette is the author of 
The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, and he's also done a lot of work on other things uh, that I'm very interested in, such as the Christian right, uh, the CNP or the Council for National Policy, and uh, this group called The Family. Uh, I remember reading his work back when he was writing um, in Killing the Buddha and the Rolling Stone about you know, the Iraq War and the whole Jesus Killed Muhammad story. Uh, he is an incredible journalist. How are you doing? It's uh, good. And thank you for the introduction, JG. It's, it's excellent to be talking with you. So let's uh, dive into The Undertow. How would you relate this to your previous works? I mentioned that you were writing about things like C Street and the CNP. You're one of the few, actually. I, I only know maybe three other people that have covered uh, the CNP organization. Uh, so what's the, conti uh, the continuity between your writing about those subjects, uh, like the family, and uh, this new book, The Undertow? I mean, I should say I've never set out to write about the right, about right-wing movements. And not all my books have been, but I, time and again, such movements kind of fascinate me, partly because they are alien to me. They're different, right? So I, you know, uh, it, it, and and partly because uh, uh, I'm opposed to such things. So um, villain is a reductive term, but it's more interesting to write a villain than, uh, let me tell you about this person who's designing this excellent recycling program that I totally admire. So, but the family, which was about the oldest and for a long time, arguably most influential, we could say Christian nationalist organization in the United States going back to 1935, very elite organization. And it kind of displaced a lot of the ideas that people had about the Christian right being, you know, just sort of pulpit pounding Southern preachers in two tight suits and so on. Here was this very educated, very international, very sophisticated organization um um and they believed in recruiting whom they called the 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 up and out not the down and out but the up and out so you know their membership was members of congress mike pence was very involved there's a number you know we senator james langford is very involved um we can make a long list um and with them i was interested in this elite the undertow you, you might even speak of them as as the broadcast and the undertow is the reception. Uh, a lot of people would say it's a family conspiracy theory. And aside from one congressman that was who was actually convicted of conspiracy, I always say no. Uh, they didn't break the laws; they made them, and it's it's a more of a structural problem, right? And they they were creating this world in which the rest of us live in a lot of ways. The reception is the undertow, which is. Uh, how do everyday people experience these messages? How do uh, uh, ideas about January 6th, about insurrection, about QAnon, uh, about what abortion is, what is it experienced by everyday people? And that became urgent to me on January 6th. So I, in some ways I had moved away. I was like, all right, I'm not going to write about the right anymore. I'm done. I paid my dues, but uh, they're not done with us. So I keep coming back to it. Since I mentioned, uh, we'll get into the undertow, but since I mentioned you wrote uh, in the past about the CNP, can you speak to the the sort of, how was this network of the right in, in, that includes everything from the Koch brothers to the Christian right, how did it evolve over the years? Well, I mean, I, I would refer listeners, actually, uh, for CNP, I would refer listeners to Ann Nelson. 
I've had uh, Anne on the show. <laughs> yeah, and 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 her her fine book, The Shadow Network. I I intersect with them mainly in in the sense that you know there's a big sort of Venn diagram of overlap between this organization, the family, and the CNP. But you know, you, you talk about the family, the CNP, Koch brothers. Um, one of the things that I think um, is often a mistake that that secular folks make, liberal folks make, left folks make, is to see the right as monolithic, right? And to see it, and that it, that gives us leads to the temptation to see, well, who's pulling the strings? Now, pulling the strings can be the CNP is running the whole show, or having written about the family, they're saying so, so they're running the whole show. No, they're running the whole show. The NRA is out there. APAC is out there. There's all kinds of right wing organizations out there. They're not all friends. They are, in fact. I would argue uh, that what has happened, what Donald Trump did that was fairly interesting, you had all these right-wing movements and they're kind of parallel. A lot of them don't talk to each other. A lot of them hate each other. And what we see in the age of Trump, the Trump scene is the convergence. And that's when social movements get very powerful. If you have, when civil rights, civil rights brought together any number of tendencies, ideas, folks who didn't talk to each other, now we have that on the far right. And I, and I think that's that's I mean, that stuff has always been there. I, I don't say like, oh, when the turning point was uh, 1972 or the turning point was 1935. Uh, Christian nationalism is in our DNA. I was just going to add to that. I was going to say it, it seems like we are in a different moment than uh, from when you wrote a book like The Family, because I actually remember there were there were a few evangelicals that were uh, fans of that book. Um not evangelicals yeah. that I agree with politically, but people like Constance Cumby were a big fan of your work in that regard. Now it seems like uh, the right wing has, there isn't that, there's not as many divisions now. It seems like they've all come under the Trump umbrella or the Trump spell. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say, uh, so the family, the, there was two books. There was a family and a book called C Street. C Street was this townhouse that was and is that the family owns on Capitol Hill and which uh, they had license as a church, so they didn't have to pay taxes, in which they provided you know, cheap housing for Congress members who wanted men who wanted to be part of this and wanted to sort of receive this counseling and this kind of biblical authority, right? And, and in that book, Sea Street, I wrote a lot about the family's involvement in East African country of Uganda, where they sponsored something subtly called the Kill the Gays Bill. It was a genocidal initiative. And my main ally, because I did take an activist tone when I, you know, when I came into the genocide, but I loved it with some journalists and Charlotte reveals his agenda. And I'm like, yeah, I'm against genocide. You got me, man. You, you found me out. Um, uh, and I worked with a guy named Warren Throckmorton, who is an e conservative evangelical professor at a Bible college who was a founder, Warren was a, a founder, won the first award for gay conversion therapy, this idea that you can pray away the gay. He believed in it, but he had enough integrity that when the people he'd worked with came back and said, nope, I'm still gay, he says, oh, I guess I was wrong. And then actually, I guess if I was wrong, then what I was doing was bullying. He's still evangelical. So there's folks out there, Warren's out there fighting the good fight now. There's, But you are right. The, in the Trump scene, and I think the media is still sort of catching up with this. They love to find an evangelical who's critical of what Christian nationalism has begun and uh, has become, and they don't recognize that there was a really a, a fairly major purge. Um, you can still be a prominent evangelical 
uh, who does not support uh, Trumpism or its variant in the form of, say, Ron DeSantis or whatever, but you will have no status and no power in, in your world. And that has been, that's something I argued in the family wouldn't happen. There's a chapter in the family called the F word. The F word, of course, stands for fascism. And in that book, and I was writing about their post-World War II recruiting actual Nazi war criminals to come work with them. And I said, but this is still not fascism because they uh, it's, a, it's there's more than one kind of bad under the sun. But they're saying, hey, you can't fascism depends on a cult of personality for them. It's Jesus. It's not a person in the world. And I thought in the United States, fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism would prevent us from crossing that particular Rubicon because we would never give up Jesus for a cult of personality. I was wrong. In the undertow, I write, I was wrong. And Trump proved that. Trump was the guy who discovered that he could kind of, you know, one of the things that he did early on, because remember, he was not endorsed by the big Christian right warlords. He realized he didn't need them. And anybody didn't want to get on board, he could just shove them aside. And he could elevate second tier figures, a woman named Paula White, not a major figure in the Christian right at all. But for the general public, she'll do. All he needs is a pastor standing over him, putting hands on him, photograph. You don't know who the person is. He's a man of God. Something I want to get into. So the the title essay of your book deals a lot with this figure of uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was uh, yeah. killed during the Capitol uh, insurrection. Could you talk about Ashley Babbitt and and that title essay? Yeah. I mean, and Ashley's a perfect example of what I'm just talking about in the sense that um, Ashley Babbitt's is a uh, uh, youngish, 30-something-year-old white woman who on January 6th, if you were watching as I did, you saw almost live her get killed. Uh, the video played shortly after it happened. She was leading a mob uh, toward what's called the Speaker's Lounge. Uh, they had three cops pinned down. The cops slide out of the way. They're smashing the windows. They're, the, the doors are barricaded. And uh, they finally smash a window. And Ashley, the lone woman in the group, uh, an athletic person sort of vaults up into the window wearing her Trump flag like a cape. And we see in the camera, just out of the corner, uh, two hands, the hands of a police officer named Michael Byrd. And he shoots her and she dies. And she becomes a martyr of this movement and a particular, very particular martyr because she does sort of double duty. One, she's a white woman killed by a black man. And in American history, that's the lynching story. That's the old story, white womanhood endangered by black uh, black men. And right away, within within hours, that was coming up. And as they did that, they would say, and she was a she was 30. She was 25. She was just a little girl. She was 130 pounds. She was 125 pounds, barely 100 pounds, just a little white girl killed by a big black man. This is the racist idea. But she was also a military veteran. She'd been part of the Capitol Guardians at one point, tasked with protecting the Capitol. So they were able to invoke another old fascist myth, which is the stabbed in the back. Here she is a veteran shot down by a police officer, betrayed by her own country. So she became a martyr and I decided, OK, I'm going to follow her story, but I'm going to I'm going to kind of follow it around the country and watch this martyr myth uh, form. And one of the things that's fascinating, we talk about what martyr means and some people are out there saying she's not a martyr, she's a terrorist. We don't get to choose who the martyrs of other movements are. All martyr means is witness. Uh, you die witnessing for your cause. She did. 
she's a stupid martyr. She was uh, a deceived martyr. But I became interested in her life. And what I'm talking about in terms of sort of how Christian nationalism changes in the age of Trump, Ashley invaded the Capitol. And that was her understanding. She says, I am there to be boots on the ground. I am there as an ex-soldier. I am there uh, uh, to storm the Capitol. She was not unarmed. The cover of my book is a, a photograph of the knife she was carrying. She understood what she was doing. She had been a Capitol guardian. But she was there also, she said, for God. She had become a kind of a QAnon believer. She says, God wins. This is a spiritual battle. So you're thinking, well, she must be a devout churchgoer, right? If Ashley ever went to church, I couldn't find evidence of it. She was a Christian nationalist. She put Christian signs in front of her house. She was also uh, in practice, if not in name, queer. She lived in a three-way relationship with her husband and their girlfriend. She lived by the beach. She was a Southern Californian beach person. And that's how Christian nationalism has come. And I think this is sort of one of the things that people really misunderstanding. If you're only looking at churches, you're not looking at the power of Christian nationalism. And you see this at Trump rallies. Uh, I learned this first actually in 2013 reporting in, in Putin's Russia, uh, where he was just starting the anti-LGBT crusade that would become very literally the blueprint for the laws we see being passed around the United States now. Putin invoked the Russian Orthodox Church. Russians love this. This is Christian nationalism at its peak. How many of these people go to church? Single digit percentage. Christian nationalism, the way it's become under Trump scene, is not about piety. It's about a certain kind of identity. One of the chapters I was really interested in uh, you ended up interacting with these MRA folks, so the men's yeah. rights activists. And one of the, you, I think you even talked to one of their leaders, um, Paul Elam. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's very, that chapter was very interesting to me because these kind of figures, they start out with something that I can sort of agree with that, like, in our society, there are working class men that get screwed over in various ways. Uh, but they, they take that and they turn the animus and say, it's all, you know, the feminists that have done this to us. Uh, they don't look at it as like a, a class issue. Um, so why do you think that is? What some of these people, I think they can uh, not just these these uh, MRA types, but I think sometimes you have people uh, that get sucked into Trumpism or QAnon that maybe do have a real concern about a real issue. You know, I think there are people that I've met that believe in stuff like QAnon that really do believe, oh, there's there's an issue with child trafficking. And like child trafficking is a real issue that happens in the world, but they, they get sucked into an air reality that, that is actually not helping with these causes. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, they, they almost always do. And, um, you know, we see sometimes the sort of the online debate is Trumpism about race or class, as if the answer isn't yes. Yes, it is about race and class. What do we uh, race class and it's about gender. And um, and that doesn't mean that they don't have real causes, even even the loss of white privilege, which is something you should lose. Right. It is a loss. They're losing something and they lack the language or they push away the language with, with which they can understand it. You take and I, I, I'll speak to the MRAs, but I would like to sort of connect it to Ashley Babbitt, this who became a terrorist. Democrat 
all of her life. Second favorite president was Obama, you know, and this is what the undertow of the title sort of refers to is the sort of these currents that are, Ashley was swimming against the current her whole life, trying to be a good person, trying to do the right thing. Long, and she's just exhausted. She's taking out loans that she didn't understand, usurious loans, loans that no honest person can pay back for her business. She's looking at the houselessness, the homelessness crisis in, in Southern California, which is severe, but she doesn't have the structural language to understand it. Homeless guys shitting in her front yard. She tries to have compassion. Trump comes along and says, you know what? It's okay to be angry and your anger is love. And she, instead of swimming against the current, just leans back, right? She's like, I'm just going to go with it. Same with these MRAs, the men's rights activists. They actually have a lot of good, and, and they're big. The reason they're in the book is they're one of, when I first encountered them, they still were sort of fringy. And now they're kind of the, the basic gender analysis of the Republican Party. They, these, these, these weird currents come to the surface. But, you know, they, they started with some, some absolutely correct. I mean, some of what they're saying you can find in the work of Andrea Dworkin, who was a very famous, very radical feminist, right? Who would say working class men are uh, working class men are recruited. Uh, to fight and die in wars, but also to work in labor that breaks their bodies at a much more rapid rate. Men experience suicide at a vastly higher rate with, you know, incarceration. And, you know, if anyone says, well, that's just because men are doing bad things. Like, no, let us take the insights of feminism and say, how is our society structured? Misogyny isn't good for anybody. It's worse for women. It's bad for men, too, these men who become alienated from themselves. So they had all these issues. They had issues about custody. They're right. Courts used to just automatically give custody to the mother, whether she was the most suitable parent or not. They had all these issues. But of all the right-wing movements I've gone and reported among, and I've reported among many, they're always actually, in fact, more interesting than their caricature, right? Because they do have these, you know, they perverted their ideas and just the hateful things, but they did have this seed of something, right? These guys were actually worse than their caricature because they weren't interested in all that. I was like, okay, so tell me about this. They just wanted to sit around and talk about bitches, the women who had betrayed them. This bitch did that, this bitch. Did. And the most violent terms, uh, um, and, and always joking about violence and saying, joking, not joking, Paul Elam, who was then a leader, you know, his idea of a, a funny joke. I, I went to a convention they had and I brought uh, two friends with me, uh, a couple. And uh, uh, one of them was a woman. And these guys are very interested. They have women in their movement. But we ended up in Paul Elam's hotel room very late with a couple other people. And his idea of conveying his movement is telling rape jokes to a woman in a hotel room, a strange woman late at night. It's... All the ideas have fallen away, and it's just become this kind of fantasy of revenge. And if that seems simple-minded, all we got to do is look at the Trump campaign. I am your retribution. Suddenly, all the grievance is falling away and being narrowed down just to revenge. That's that. That's where that undertow takes us. I also wanted to ask you, I know this is like getting into the nitty-gritty details of the book, but you mentioned uh, this Gnostic poem called Thunder yeah. Perfect Mind in yeah. relation to Trump. What, why do you make that comparison? So 
the the way I see uh, and this term I call the Trumpocene, right? Um, this is a term comes from a filmmaker friend of mine, Jeff Ruoff, the age of Trump. And you could say, but Trump's not in power. Well, the way political scientists will look at it is they'll say the age of Reagan goes from 1980 to 2016. And you're like, what? What about Clinton and Obama? It doesn't matter. Reaganism sort of defines the spectrum of how we talk about what government is. 2016 on, Trump is in power or not. He's shaping things, right? And I think the Trump scene is divided into sort of three moments. The, the 2016 campaign is the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be rich. We're gonna we're gonna win so much you're gonna get tired of winning, as he says. But 2020, and this is where the Gnostic comes in. 2020 is 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 the conspiracy campaign. It's the QAnon campaign. It's the moment where Trump starts crossing over into not just winking at these conspiracy theories, but as I write in the book, there's a particular moment you can see in an interview with Laura Ingraham where he's crossed over and he started believing them himself. So I was paying, I was going around, I go to a lot of Trump rallies and listening to QAnon that was coming explicitly from QAnon people, but far more people, maybe people never heard of QAnon, but they could tell you its precepts. It shapes it, you know, people are talking about child trafficking or 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 cannibalism in the Democratic Party or all these kinds of things. And you say, oh, so you believe in QAnon? And they'd say, huh, what's that? That's an idea that has gone further field. And I think I made the connection to Gnosticism when I started realizing, you know, we like to make fun of Trump's spelling and weird capitalization and so on. The guy's illiterate and so on. And so many people, I remember seeing people wearing these t-shirts saying Trump's tweets matters and selling beautiful leather bound books, gathering all the tweets. And I'm like, what about the spelling? And they're like, oh yeah, that's, those are codes. Those are messages. You have to learn. Trump is a five-dimensional chess player. You have to learn how to do that. So, so I said, all right, secret knowledge, secret knowledge. And I started thinking about it in terms of this ancient Christian heresy called Gnosticism. And now what I want to say when I say there's a Gnostic gospel of Trump, it's not, it's not the original Gnosticism. It's a bastardized, Americanized Gnosticism. This idea that the official story is not the real story. That you have to you have to learn how to read the codes. That there's a secret wisdom, and that you do this by tapping into something inside yourself. So the deep state, deep state is is almost sort of like a a, a word for word translation of a Gnostic gospel idea. Even the idea that Trump is somehow divine, right? There's a way, like yeah, you think you think you see in your church God, but really the real power is over here. This all has this this elements of, of Gnosticism. So I started talking to, to people and uh, there's one woman in the book, I call her Diane G. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah. But this goes even further than Gnosticism. And that poem you mentioned, the, the Thunder Perfect Mind, and I, I don't have the book with me, so I can't quote it, but it, it's, a, it's a classic text of this ancient, these are, if people are know with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's where Gnosticism comes from. It's, a, it's a, the path Christianity didn't take. But it's a poem full of contradictions. I am, you know, I am the law and lawlessness. I am the one who is scorned and the one who is honored and so on. And and it just described how so many Trump followers see this sort of double truth of this this character whom they have come to adore and worship. Right. I, re- I remember one of the opening lines in, in that poem is uh, – I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I mean, it is all about those 
sort of paradoxes. Yeah, I'm the whore and the holy one is dead on for so many Trump followers who know it. You know, this is the idea that, again, folks say, like, how, you know, this guy, they know about his infidelities. They absolutely know about them. And he is holy, right? He is both. And that's, they moved into the space where the <laughs> parallax views, the, the coexistence of, of contradictory truths is what is the evidence of the sort of simultaneity of it. And it feels, if, if you're just coming to that kind of thing, it feels incredibly sophisticated. And I think that's important for like people like Ashley Babbitt. We make fun of that phrase, do your own research. We shouldn't, because do your own research is a democratizing idea, right? We could say, we could add to that, do some good research and learn research methods. But these are people who, I'm sitting in a college library. I have always had access to libraries and books and so on. These are people, many of whom are like, oh, for the first time, wait a minute, I can go and I can find this out for myself. And they find out an idea. They find out child trafficking. You go to the website of uh, the Center for, I can't remember what it is, Missing Children, and you will find out that a number that QAnon uses, 800,000 children abducted a year, you can find evidence of that. Oh, okay. Well, now, if you don't know how to do your research, you don't know that you can't stop as soon as you find the spectacular item. You have to keep reading. 800,000 children are reported missing every year, and almost all of them are found within hours. You know, it's 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 just a confusion. So a babysitter doesn't return it or a custody dispute and so on. But they stop reading at eight, that 800,000 number, and it confirms the secrets that are being withheld from us. So I have to be honest. I'm in Florida right now. So this is DeSantis land, Trump land. And I've actually encountered what you're talking about, where I will meet people uh, – and I'll say to them, you know, how can you support someone like Trump? I mean, he's not this is not a very Christian man. This is a guy who I would say encapsulates a sort of might makes right, greed is good worldview, right? And to me, that's very, I mean, as a Catholic, to me, that's not Christian at all. Um, and they'll say to me, well, he's just the person we need right now. He may not be Christian, but he's the person we need to save Christianity. And I'm just... I always wonder what leads people to that kind of thinking, because I, I think most of us, um, especially in progressive or left-wing circles, we often may mock them and say, oh, well, they're just, they're dumb or they're stupid or they're evil. I, I think it's more than that. I, th I think that's a, a caricature. What What is like, what's the driving force here? Because I I, I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around it. Well, I mean, the other undertow of the book is is grief and despair, right? And, uh, you know, there was a chapter they took out about it. Actually, uh, I took out the chapter about the pandemic for various reasons, but I wanted it to be implicit. Here's a country, you know, that's lost a million and counting people, never really properly mourned. There are no memorials. Um, we all have felt in one way or the other this these losses. Climate. You may not believe in climate change, but it believes in you. And you see a guy out there with his coal roller, you know, these trucks that are that have pipes that dispute extra pollution. That's not a guy who doesn't exactly believe in climate change. That's a guy who is defiant. I put it in the context of 
Uh, this is Yiddish, the language of the Eastern European Jews and early 20th century. Many people don't realize there was a very radical community in the United States. And there used to be the Yiddish anarchist Yom Kippur ball. Yom Kippur is a high holy day. You're supposed to fast. These guys, they don't believe in God. They're not going to do that. So what do they do on Yom Kippur? They have a pig roast. We're going to eat and we're going to eat unkosher stuff. And you see what's happening there? These are not people who don't believe in God. These are people who are shaking their fists and saying, see how much I don't believe in you. That's what the coal roller is. That's what the grief and all this despair is. There is, the world is in deep trouble and they're not alone in thinking that, right? So something's got to give. There's a best-selling book that I quote uh from 2016, a Trump book that I quote, and it wasn't paid attention in the secular press. It's called God's Chaos Candidate by a, a, a formerly C-lister uh, evangelical named Lance Walnow, who sort of parlayed his his connection to to Trump into, uh, into sort of A-level status. And in God's Chaos Candidate, he says, oh, this is what God wants now. He wants a wrecking ball. He wants someone to destroy. And now, we can say, oh, but isn't the Bible a book of peace? And, and you know, good Christians know it's a book of a lot of things. Um, Jesus himself says, I come not to bring peace, but the sword. Or we go and back into uh, what I discovered driving across the country, uh, uh, what has become a popular evangelical so-called battle verse, Joshua 1.9. And it's about Joshua getting ready, God instructing Joshua in the book of Joshua to take the city of Jericho. And this sounds like a good story. You know, he marches around Jericho seven times and blows his horn and people forget to read the rest of the story. Just like the QAnon folks don't read the rest. God instructs him to kill everyone inside the city. That's a divine mandate. So you see someone with Joshua 1.9. Like, hey, yikes, yikes, that's, that, that's not something you want to invoke. But, and, and I found this embodied, in, and I write about this in some of these churches, uh, these, these sort of mid-sized uh, megachurches around the country. And there's one, the Church of Glad Tidings, which listeners might have seen because it went viral briefly for giving General Mike Flynn a customized AR-15 on, on the altar. Um, you go into this church, as I did, it's in Yuba City, California, and there are no crosses. There are no crosses and the pulpit is made of swords. And I asked the pastor why this was. And he says, now is not a, now is a time of war theology. Um, and it was the first, but not the last church that I encountered that was building up its own militia uh, church in Nebraska, pastor Hank Kuhneman, kind of a B-list guy, which is to say, you know, he, he shows up on the same programs as Trump. Uh, he's interpreting Psalm 23, that, Thy, thy rod and thy staff, thy comfort me. Did you hear at funerals? He says, thy rod, thy rod is thy gun. And that's why he has armed men, one of whom ends up escorting me out of the church, right? So they are taking a radically different interpretation of Christianity, but we would be fools to simply say, oh, well, they're just dupes who haven't read the whole thing. It's a little bit, we haven't read the whole thing. Just a few more things briefly here. Do you think there's just something um, very powerful and seductive about Trump's message, which in a lot of ways, I think Trump's message boils down to, you know, I'll be the one that saves you. You know, and I I, I mean, I think there are real problems in this world, even, even with, um, you know, now right-wingers will talk about globalism, but, you know, the left had critiques of economic globalization and neoliberalism 
back in the 90s. You know, one of my first introductions to that was Noam Chomsky. And I do think we've reaped a lot of, um, you know, negatives from, you know, how things were handled in the 90s after the Cold War and going forward. And we're, yeah, yeah. we're reaping those consequences. And I feel like people like Trump are taking advantage and saying, well, you know, don't look at the structural issue. I will be the one to come in and be the strong man that saves you. And not just Trump, but we see it with, uh, you know, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Thank Thankfully, he's gone now. Uh, Orban, Putin, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 and many more. And I think this is one of the things for folks who, who see this as a particularly American problem, they, uh, they really we, you really want to understand that uh, this is a moment of global fascist ascendancy and incredibly dangerous in that regard <laughs> um, because there is no really full-size countervailing force as the last global fascist ascendancy was. Say what you will about Stalin, and I'll say a lot because he's a genocidal murderer and a monster, right? But communism and fascism, after that pact breaks up, there's there's something like democracy and something like communism and then fascism and they go to war. Right. And fascism uh, is not a wholly defeated. The the big powers are broken. There is no Soviet Union and the United States is on the verge of becoming a fascist power itself. Right. Um, and I think the seductiveness. And so we see all over the world is, is, is yes, is a critique of neoliberalism the, the left did make, and you mentioned how the left used to use globalism. And I remember marching the Battle of Seattle, and and you know we we're we were fighting against the sort of brutalities of uh, free market fundamentalism, and we had a critique of globalism. And one of the things that happened in the two thousands is a whole lot of terms that the left just handed to the right. We just uh, we just dropped it, so the right picks it up. And globalism now. And I, you know, I marched against globalism then. I would never use it now. Globalism now has become a, a, a pretty much a perfect one-for-one uh, -one meaning of, of anti-Semitism, and and that's a sort of a more complicated thing because the way Trump is, the way Trump invokes anti-Semitism, is, is is fairly innovative, or free speech, right? Free speech used to be a left value. Now we have right wingers talking about free speech, by which they mean the right to take books out of libraries. It's, talk about contradictions and, and paradoxes. Um, and yeah, along comes a guy who says, "I alone can fix it," as Trump says, this is a classic saying of fascism. Not anybody can do this, as your governor Ron DeSantis is 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 learning. Um, and as I learned, I just I'm, I'm I'm such an old man. I just I don't know if you saw the article, the Oxford. Uh, dictionary word of the year. Um, you know, every year they pick a new word to add to the dictionary. This year, it's the word Riz, R-I-Z-Z. I didn't know this. Do you know this word? No, I didn't. It's short for charisma, and and Ron doesn't have it. <laughs> um, but Trump, yeah, Trump is is telling a story, and I think we're so us, those of us on the left and, and the liberals are so invested in the ways in which he doesn't tell stories the way we do that we are not noticing how good he is at telling stories. He's one of the two best orders I've ever seen. The other one is Obama. And you say, how can he be a good order? He stumbles over his words. He contradicts himself and so on. Don't pay attention to the words. If you want to understand Trump, in fact, find a speech, watch it without sound. And you think, oh, God, right, I'm going to see Hitler. No, no, you're not. You're going to see a Borscht Belt comedian. You're going to see a guy with comic timing. 
saying horrific, violent things with comic timing. It's a powerful formula. There were just uh, two more things I wanted to mention in in regards to all of this. So I guess the first thing I wanted to say was, it sounds like you're saying in some ways, does, does the left need to find its storytelling voice? I mean, so the the subtitle of the book, Undertow, is Scenes from a Slow Civil War. But there's another subtitle that I wouldn't use because it's clunky and because I don't actually have the answer. It's how to tell stories about fascism. I don't have the answer. This is my attempt. Maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like this. Because one thing I will say is we don't know how. And and this is a little bit like why, I uh, borrowing from left history, the popular front of the 1930s, how did you beat fascism? Everybody works together. No purity narratives. Everybody works together. I'm an all-hands-on-deck person. I don't trust anybody who says, the way we beat fascism is X. I say, that's great. You do X. I'm going to do Y. We need, we need the whole alphabet here because we have not figured out how to talk about it. And this book, it, the, the title essay, The Undertow, has its own undertow of footnotes. And they're not boring academic footnotes, I hope. They're me arguing with what I'm doing and the text above, sometimes saying, yeah, that thing that I just did, I just realized that's how we tell stories in magazines and newspapers and books. But maybe, maybe that's not enough. And what's terrifying is we're seeing the political press not fall back to 2020, but they're falling back to 2016 and how they're covering this campaign. It's and, and it's for want of a better way to tell the story. That's that's a good lead into the one of the last things I wanted to ask you, which is uh, that subtitle "Scenes from a Slow Civil War." What do you mean by a slow civil war? So the 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 book sort of began after I was watching January six, and and I you know was long long on the right wing beat. I've been sort of looking at this, and you know from from the election on, I said this is a slow motion coup. And a lot of people scoffed at those of us who were saying that. And then, you know, in the same way they scoffed at us in 2016 when we said, yeah, Trump could win. Nah, you know, it, it, there's no satisfaction in being right on these, these these things. But then people are saying, yeah, coup. And then I started hearing historians, scholarly historians, academic historians talking about the rhetoric of civil war. And that stuff had always been floating around there on the right, but it was fringe. And, um, and now people are saying, oh, political scientist Barbara F. Walter and her valuable book, uh, what was it called? How Civil Wars Start, I think. And a sort of vast kind of uh, international study involving a lot of scholars saying, oh, the conditions are ripe here. So so I went traveling around. And my first thing was, okay, what do people, you know, do people think we're headed towards civil war? And I very quickly discovered that, you know, there's only, there's only one answer with two variations. It's yes and hooray right there's a lot of people looking forward to it um these are right wing folks and there's yes it's too bad it has to happen but it must right so that gets me scared the slow civil war no we're not in a civil war we're not even in the irish troubles yet though that may be coming but people say are you think this could come to violence i'm like what do you mean come to violence there's there's been a lot of violence and there's also, we see things happening. For instance, the for all the pregnant people who have died for want of reproductive rights, those are casualties of the slow civil war. We see a wave of trans and queer youth suicide. Now, suicide has many causes, but there is no question that it has, this epidemic is shaped by the correct perception. You're not being paranoid if you think the state is out to get you in Florida. It is. 
And that can take a youth who is already struggling with, with issues and can put them over the edge into despair. Those are casualties. We see these men lining up with guns outside libraries. Bars are going to have a drag bunch. And so far, mostly the shooting hasn't started. And people say, well, it's okay then. You know, anyone who says, hey, come on, the shooting hasn't started. How would you feel? If a row of 10 guys said, you know what, we're just going to post up with our ARs outside your house. Don't worry, we won't shoot unless anything gets untoward. You'd be fucking terrified. And the metaphor that I've been using is what we're doing. The slow civil war is we're striking matches and flicking them into the grass. And so far, thank God, it hasn't caught fire. But how many times can you flick a match into the grass and count on that to happen? And I was just going to add to that. I mean, the great tragedy for me is, uh, you know, I'm, I've only been living in Florida for maybe a year or so now, but I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I'm from Pittsburgh. And uh, I've spent a lot of time in places like, uh, you know, Ohio. And uh, you just see the wreckage in places like you, you talk yeah. about Youngstown in the book. There's just oh, this wreckage yeah. everywhere. And these Republicans are saying, well, we'll, we'll we're going to fix this. And they're just destroying these communities. I see them do it in Pennsylvania. And that's the biggest tragedy to me about it. Yeah, I went to Youngstown. That was the first Trump rally I reported on in 2016. And afterwards, you know, I'm sitting in this bar with these group of guys and their union guys. And um, and they're mostly for Trump. And, uh, um, and part of the reason they're for Trump is that Trump is promising to bring the steel mills back. But they're not fools. He's lying, of course. I'm like, so what do you like him? He's like, at least he's fucking telling us the lie, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, I mean, there is a certain bullshit. It's like, don't worry, Youngstown, we're going to be re-education. 45-year-old person, I think we do need to contend with that wreckage. Now, again, race or class, yes, right? Because on that very quickly, that economic grievance finds its expression in racism, right? Um, and and vice versa. And there's a, a thing out there, and I, I should probably run after this, but there's a thing out there where people are saying, well, actually, Trump supporters tend to be uh, middle class. Yeah, but we on the left are, are ought to be in the place where we understand that if you're making, say, uh, $65,000 a year, not a bad income and so on, and you are still struggling to pay the rent and pay for your car. And the idea of sending your kid to college is a pipe dream. Don't go telling that person, hey, everything's fine. The left, yeah, the better storytelling is, is and, and we see some folks trying to do it, saying like, yeah, let's build unions. Let's build labor. Let's build a uh, a party that is about uh, imagining a more vibrant democratic culture. And this is the last thing I'll say, because I do think we're facing fascism. The opposite of fascism is important to remember is not anti-fascism. Anti-fascism is a means to an end, right? The opposite of fascism is a vibrant democratic culture, something more beautiful, something more lovely, something more lively, something more fair. And that's what we, we've got. That's the story we've got to figure out how to tell. Well, hey, I want to thank you, Jeffrey Charlotte. Uh, we're going to have to talk again in the future because I didn't get to ask you about Norman Vincent Pill. But Anyways, oh, I will let right, you yeah, going, but one of my favorite topics. All right. Take care, man. Very good talking to you. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeff Charlette and that you'll consider checking out his book, The Undertow. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon 
at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show going. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, but otherwise, this is listener-funded. So kick me some cash at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.